1: The temperature fell from a record-setting 107 degrees back to normal in Silicon Valley. But that didn't mean you could do anything. The air quality continues to be, and I quote, hazardous to your health. In fact, the equivalent of smoking multiple packs of cigarettes an hour. So what's left to do? Read a book that holds your attention, even if it isn't great literature? As a general rule, I ignore Trump tell-all books as a waste of time and money. And so far, the exceptions have been, you know, John Bolton's book, which I found tedious and anonymous, which was, to be honest, a yawn. But after hearing Stephanie Winston Wolkoff on television last week, I thought, what the heck? I can't go anywhere, I can't do anything between COVID, wildfires, and unhealthy air. So I might as well. By the time I'd finished that book, I still couldn't even take the dog for a real walk. It was orange in the sky. So I succumbed yet again. And I have to admit to being intrigued by the whole Michael Cohn saga. I mean, how does a smart man from a really good family with a stable career and a wonderful family of his own, earning plenty of money, how does he end up throwing it all away on being a Donald Trump sycophant? For more than a decade, a sycophant for more than a decade. So maybe his story would help to explain why Otherwise, normal people continue to throw away their reputations in the service of Trump. For 28 bucks for both of them, delivered to my iPad Kindle application, it seemed like a reasonable bet. And you know what? Both of those books exceeded my expectations. They are well written. And they share five common themes about being a friend of the Trumps. It starts with favors that lead to major entanglements that are emotionally draining, economically calamitous, and end in humiliation. And it ends with a friendship where you look yourself in the mirror and ask, with friends like this, will I ever need enemies? It turns out that Michael Cohn and Stephanie Winston-Wolkoff have known each other for many years beyond their former relationships with the Trumps. Ms. Walkoff's father is a client of Michael Cohn's brother, Ryan, and Michael did legal work for Ms. Walkoff's businesses while he was still in private practice with his brother before his Trump EVP days. It turns out as well that they move in the same social circles and that they share the painful background that comes with being the grandchild or the child of Holocaust survivors. And then there's their last commonality. They both know Maggie Haberman of the New York Times and her several bylines that involved their humiliations. Miss Wolkoff portrayed as a grasping, scheming New York socialite in head, in the headlines, regarding her work on the Presidential Inaugural Committee. Mr. Cohn, when the Stormy Daniels cover-up became front-page news and led within 30 days to his criminal plea in the federal courts. But have you noticed that you don't see Maggie Scoops on TV very often these days or those of her writing partner, Ken Vogel? It turns out That Maggie met the Trumps through Cohn, for whom she had long been a media contact, and that her New York Times stories were Trump family-issued scoops. If nothing else, the Wolkoff story revealed Maggie's sources and made Haberman, sadly, a less credible newswoman. And I want you to hold that thought because it's gonna come back in the discussion of Michael Cohn's pursuit of redemption. Suffice it to say that Stephanie Winston Wolkoff's story is particularly important in the 50 days in the run-up to the presidential election, because it makes clear that as a voter, you've gotta see the same information presented in multiple formats over time to figure out what is true and what is not. What is a fact? What is somebody's opinion? What is somebody's perspective? Giving perspective is a Trump family specialty. And Cohn's narrative will underscore the point that news outlets, even the New York Times, can be corrupted with an offer of a scoop. I picked up Bologna and Me because I was drawn to how Ms. Wolkoff wore her sense of betrayal on her sleeve in her first TV interview. Her hurt, her personal sense of betrayal, and her fury just came straight through the screen. She's not just some New York socialite friend of Melania's, as the New York Times headline proclaimed. And as Maggie Haberman knew, she's a New York socialite. Yeah, that's true. She's the granddaughter of Harry Winston, the world famous jeweler. She is also a top-notch New York and global event planner. She's a veteran of 10 years as Vogue's event planner. She is the veteran of 10 years of the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Costume Institute Gala. That is the New York City event of the year. When Nicole Kidman was ready for her coming out following her divorce from Tom Cruise. It was Stephanie who organized the New York premiere of Nicole Kidman's movie Moulin Rouge and reintroduced her as an independent film star. So Miss Walkoff's career has spanned a couple of decades and has produced about 50 other events every year in the United States and Europe, focused primarily on philanthropy through fashion. A protege of Condé Nash's publisher, Anna Wintour. You don't get much bigger in the world of fashion and philanthropy than that. So in addition, Mrs. Wolcuff holds a number of charitable board seats, including the Lincoln Center and Stanford University's Children's Hospital. Her husband is legitimately one of New York State's biggest land developers and builders. She and Melania have been, quote, girlfriends since Melania had first been introduced at Vogue as Donald's fiance, the purpose being to groom her, to have experts groom her for her new role. Stephanie and Melania lunched for years over things that New York socialites lunch about. Children, parties, fashion, Donald's wandering eye. And Melania would periodically ask for favors, for a florist, for school references, for Baron, for introductions to designers, to tickets, uh, to events, because Trump doesn't like to pay. Things that were easily accessible to Stephanie Wolkoff. So, she writes about her busy schedule, her several high-profile business partnerships. In 2016 and early 2017, she did not need the work, the headaches, or anything else that came with planning a presidential inauguration in just 60 days. It turns out that no previous presidential inaugural planner would undertake that task for the Trumps. He has a reputation of not paying his bills, and he's not popular in establishment circles. So Miss Wolokoff, working with Hollywood producer Mark Burnett, who had previously produced *The Apprentice*, is the producer of *The Voice*, etc. You know, they figured out a way to pull it off. No, a lightless stars would appear, etc. <clears throat> But those weren't the things that really worried Stephanie Wolkoff. No, she writes in her emails about overpriced items, like the Trump Hotel, for example. She also had no budget control. Of the $28 million she's accused of bamboozling, her retainer was a mere 400000 and the rest was used to pay the vendors that um, she recruited to help with various parts of the inauguration. As first lady, Melania would need a staff and a platform, a platform that focused on children's issues for the next four years. Stephanie Wolkoff thought that Melania had the empathy and the concern for children that Donald Trump lacks, that she would be what rounded him out. Melania, she believed, could do good things for America's children in her four years or eight years as first lady. So Stephanie Wolkoff worked as an unpaid volunteer, don't worry, you know, wasn't that she was not living in a penthouse in New York, but she was an unpaid volunteer working on Melania's platform as well as staffing her office over the next two years, even when spinal surgery left her in a hospital bed for a month. In the final chapter, Ms. Wolkoff writes, I should have listened to her, meaning Melania, when she said, why are you trying so hard? Why do you care so much? She told me in her way that she was not a part of the solution, that she was part of the problem. So Stephanie Winston Wolkoff's reward for two years of hard work calling in favors, including Ralph Lauren, who she had to get to make the inaugural outfit, calling in a favor. What she got was misleading headlines in the New York Times in early 2018. And shortly after those headlines, one of the friends who came to her apartment hoping to help was Michael Cohn. The tape he made of their conversation seeking, he explains, to help her exonerate herself included her concerns about significant overcharges at the Trump Hotel during the inaugural week. And that tape was part of what was seized when the FBI served a search warrant on Cohn a couple of weeks later. It was thus, those that tape, that first tipped off the Southern District of New York and caused them to begin to ask questions that went beyond the New York Times headlines and to begin to issue subpoenas for all of Stephanie Wolkoff's records and as well as her testimony. Following SDNY came the House Oversight Committee and the Attorney General of the District of Columbia. She has also testified and remains involved in investigations that are still seeking to understand where the $107 million donated to the Presidential Inaugural Committee more than ever before had mysteriously disappeared to. Well, well, It turns out that Rick Gates took some of the missing money, but nobody's yet been able to account for the rest. She concludes the book by acknowledging that most of her friends had warned her not to trust anyone with the last name Trump. She acknowledges that those friends had her best interests at heart, and they were correct. Last line in the book. I wish I had never met her. She quotes Cohn as telling her days after his own guilty plea, I'll be on the inside, but you, Stephanie, will be on the outside telling the truth. You will make this happen. Michael Cohn's story is the same, and yet it's very different. Michael Cohn knew better than to become the fixer for Donald Trump. He knew it when Trump first called him to help with a legal matter that Donald Jr. had gotten himself involved in. He knew it during the 10 years he worked for Trump. There's a lot of self-loathing in this book, and there should be his upbringing is antithetical to his behavior and oddly enough it's the same moral upbringing he gave his children and his children had the same reaction. His wife and his children hated that he worked for Trump and they begged him in his telling daily to quit. He was on his own a successful lawyer and businessman. No, He doesn't have any mafia ties, except, he explains, working in a Brooklyn joint when he was in high school. Networking, and I agree with him here, is the essence of building good business relationships. He says in the book, I do favors for people. He writes how every time he hated himself even more for something he did to someone else in the furtherance of Donald Trump's interests, he would tell himself, that's it, no more, I'm done. And then he'd be drawn back in like a moth to a flame. He writes and no one asked for clarification or retraction, so it must be true that he planned to quit in 2014 to do a business deal with a genuine billionaire. Mark Cuban. But he stayed lured by the prospect of the power and prestige that would come with a Trump presidential bid in 2016. What a life-changing mistake that turned out to be. I'm not going to bore you with the details year by year, deal by deal. Cohn's not asking any of us to feel sorry for him. He recognizes his sycophantic relationship with Trump was wrong. He acknowledges that some price had to be paid, even if what it serves is as a warning to others near the president. If those types of things interest you, I recommend the book. It's well-written and easy to follow and it's number one on the New York Times bestseller list today. But Cohn makes some overarching and extremely important points points that he started to make in his Mueller testimony and his second appearance before the House of Representatives, points he had a lot of time to consider in prison, points that he hopes we voters will ponder in the next 50 days. They're not about Trump's tortured relationship with his children or how he abuses vendors and his development projects or how he swindled thousands with Trump University or his numerous infidelities, or how unusual Cohn's treatment by the Southern District of New York appears to be, and that Donald Trump had to know about it from the beginning. Nope. Michael Cohn captures the essence of how Donald Trump works in two overarching points, and we'd best pay attention to them. First, there is his ability to manipulate the press until the line between truth and falsehood is blurred even to Trump himself. Second, there is his admiration for authoritarian leaders and their management styles and how that could come to impact our democracy. Cohn writes, Donald Trump's presidency is a product of the free press. I wanna repeat that because I think it's extremely important Donald Trump's presidency is a product of the free press. And I mean free, he writes, as unpaid for. Rallies, broadcast live, tweets, press conferences, idiotic interviews, 24-7 wall-to-wall coverage, all without spending a penny. The free press says, and I'm quoting Michael Cohn, the free press gave America Trump right, left, moderate, tabloid, broadsheet, television, radio, internet, Facebook, that's who elected Trump and might well elect him again. It continues to amaze me that this phenomenon is not a central part of the conversation about the current plight of the United States of America. And remember, I am quoting Cohn, I'm not quoting myself, okay? Trump's great for ratings. Cohn goes on, Trump's great for ratings, right or left. You can make bank, talking about Trump. In other words, you can make money. It's like a car crash. People are unable to avert their gaze. He goes on, Trump knew how to exploit the greed and banality of journalists because he was and is an expert on the subjects, greed, Venality, But there is something deeper and more primal in the way the media obsesses over Trump, as I did. Trump's a great story. He's chaos all the time. And that ends the quote. And that chaos day to day is free media coverage. And And he's covered every day in that way, today. When, he comes, when it comes to Trump's attraction and to an admiration for authoritarian leaders, Cohn explains, quote, Trump loved Putin because the Russian had the, I'm sorry, this is his work, not mine. I don't use language like this. Trump loved Putin because the Russian had the balls to take over an entire nation and run it like it was his personal company, like the Trump Organization. He continues, I believe the most extreme ideas about power and its uses only really took shape as Trump began to seriously contemplate the implications of power and how he could leverage it. And he continues further, as the campaign went along, as Trump started to see ways to cheat and lie to win, he came to see that Russia could be potentially a great ally not for the United States of America, but for him personally, a distinction that was starting to blur. What appeared, he conti- he continues, what appeared to be collusion was really a confluence of shared interests in harming Hillary Clinton. And He goes on, and it amazed me that the national press investigated every accusation made against Hillary Clinton, as if she was the most devious and corrupt politician in history. While Trump's long history of bankruptcies and infidelities and dubious business practices received relatively little scrutiny, I knew it was only because no one believed he would win. And that ends the quote. In a recent interview promoting his number one New York Times bestseller, Cohn pointed to the deliberate sabotage of the United States Mail by Louis DeJoy and recent comments from the President and Attorney General Barr on mail fraud uh, as a warning that Trump is planning to try to steal the election. I mean, that's not something the rest of us hadn't contemplated. Cone went on in this interview to say about 2024, Trump's not joking. He doesn't joke. I've never heard him tell a joke, and we should all be conscious of that. But to bring us full circle to where tales of Stephanie Winston Wolkoff and Michael Cone intersect yet one more time, Stephanie writes about presenting the inaugural parade concepts to Trump. No floats, he said. I want tanks and missiles like North Korea. Cohn and former FBI counterterrorism official Peter Strzok believe there is more to the Trump and Russia story than meets the eye and that it probably involves money. So stay tuned. I've just started reading Compromised.